And I tell people now, you know, I have drug addicts. I have business guys that come to me and say they've done shady things in the past. I've had people have done some, you know, pretty, pretty dark things. And I tell them, you know, who better than you, if you've been through something, to be able to minister to something, somebody that's going through that now. You know, I always believe that, you know, credibility is about 90% of everything in life. And when you're credible, people listen. Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, and that was today's guest, former mobster Michael Francis. Now, Michael has a truly compelling story about his journey into the mob, his success as an innovator and entrepreneur in that field. He mentions in this interview that at one point he was bringing in close to $10 million per week. That's impressive how God got a hold of his life, and how he has miraculously left the mob life. Michael has a new movie that's currently showing in theaters across the country called God the Father. Now, I'm a bit of a documentary nerd, so when I watched this well-put-together film of Michael's life, I was impressed. And in the show notes for today's episode, we'll include links to screening locations, as well as how you could host a screening in your city. If you've ever been fascinated by the Godfather trilogy, by Goodfellas, by Bronx Tales, some of my favorite movies, just go to eternalleadership.com slash 024, and we'll have all those links for you there. But first, here's our interview with Michael Francis on this episode of Eternal Leadership. Well, Michael, welcome to Eternal Leadership. And today, this is a this is a, a special episode that we have. Uh, Michael, you know, you know, we're bringing on some of the top leaders in in business and uh, in people that have just accomplished incredible things in their life. Now, Michael, in your past, you were probably one of the top businessmen and leaders, but in a different area. Uh, you spent your time uh, in the uh, in the mob in New York City, but you have a testimony and a journey that is absolutely incredible. Uh, it moved me. I've heard it a, a number of times, and I'm so thankful for you coming on and, and sharing with our audience. Uh, Michael, I'd love for you to just introduce yourself and just start and just you know share your journey with us and uh, and what's on your heart today. Well, thank you, John and Steve. I appreciate the opportunity to, to do that, and I uh, appreciate your opening in prayer. And, um, you know, my story is I was uh, born and raised in New York, um, first Brooklyn, then moved out to Long Island. My dad was the underboss of the Colombo family, one of the five New York Mafia La Cosa Nostra families in, in the New York area. And uh, I grew up, I would say, quite differently than, uh, than most people listening to this uh, program right now, and that I grew up uh, really idolizing my father and hating the government as a result of that, because my father was very, very high profile, uh, always a major target of law enforcement, uh, kind of like the John Gotti of his day. And uh, since I cared for my father so much, I always viewed government, law enforcement, police as the enemy. So I grew up in that kind of atmosphere, even though my dad tried hard not to, you know, bring what was going on in his life into the house. He tried to have us live as normal as possible, but it was difficult under the circumstances because my dad was for a period of about 10 years under constant uh, government police surveillance where we had, you know, various agencies parked around our house 24 hours a day, seven days a week for a number of years. So I grew up in that kind of atmosphere. My dad didn't originally want this life for me. He wanted me to go to school, be a doctor, you know, get an education. He thought that was important. 
Uh, and I was on that road until he got in some real trouble in the 60s. He was indicted several times, uh, both in the state um, and eventually with the, the federal government, and uh, eventually was convicted in federal court of masterminding a nationwide string of bank robberies, and he was sentenced in 1966 to 50 years in prison, which was pretty much a death sentence for him at that time. He was 50 years old, around 50 when he was sentenced, I believe he was early 50s when he went into prison and I was devastated by that um, and I was very upset because my dad always maintained his innocence claimed it was uh, unfair charges brought against him and you know that really weighed heavy on my heart and made me even more angry and bitter with law enforcement and the government and uh, I was a pre-med student at Hofstra University um, when my dad was finally uh, incarcerated in 1970 he was shipped off to Leavenworth Penitentiary start his, uh, his sentence. And Joe Colombo, who was the boss of our family at that time, who obviously I knew very well, my dad was his underboss, um, I knew the family very well, he kind of took me under his wing, and uh, I would meet a lot of my dad's friends, a lot of other made guys, guys part of that life, and, um, you know, they had an influence on me, telling me, you know, why would you go to school when your father was put in prison, you need to help him out. And it really got to me. I went to visit my dad in Leavenworth, and we were in the visiting room, and I said, Dad, I'm not going to school anymore. If I don't help you out, you're going to die in here. And he was upset, but, you know, he knew my mind was made up. I was pretty headstrong as a kid. And, you know, I'll never forget, he just kind of threw up his hands, and he said to me, okay, but if you're going to be on the street, I want you on the street the right way. And in his mind, the right way was to become a member of his life. So he just told me, go home. Um... You know, somebody's going to be in touch with you. Just do whatever you're told. And, you know, there was obviously a real significance to that meeting because my dad never explained anything to me about his life. You know, one of the policies of that life is you're not supposed to discuss it with anybody outside of the life. And my dad, you know, if he was anything, he was a good soldier. He wouldn't violate that policy even with me and his son. He just knew I had it in me. He knew who I was. And he said, go home and do what you're told. And for me, I never questioned him. Um, because I loved him so much, I was ready to do anything he wanted me to do to help him out. So I just trusted him. So, Michael, and up until that point, you had you you knew what your dad did, but you had no idea what that entailed. No, I did. I didn't know the extent of it because, you know, in many ways, when I was with my dad, I only saw the good side of that. Meaning, you know, we'd go to the Copacabana, which was the you know famous nightclub at that time, and always have a ringside table and meet with all the stars, you know, from Frank Sinatra on down. I saw the respect that my dad was given. Um, you know, we lived, we weren't, we didn't live a, a very wealthy, lavish lifestyle, but we were very comfortable. Uh, my dad was a good father in the house, so I only saw that side of it. I never was with him with his other business side. And, and my dad was also, you know, associated with the record business at the time, so I used to go up and see some record person, you know, some uh, music personalities at the time. So that's the side I witnessed. Now, of course, I saw the legal issues that he had, but I didn't see the extent of his life in the mob. And and so I really was unaware of what it really involved, other than the fact that, you know, there was uh, news articles about my dad, which, which I was encouraged not to read, and a lot of times I did not. Every once in a while, I would read and pick up a little, but I always felt that because I cared for my dad so much that these stories weren't true, and I just dismissed them. I didn't want to believe them. I, I let it go with that. So, um, you know, that's that's kind of the way I, I dealt with it. And, 
you know, after I left there that day, um, a captain in the family, another member, picked me up and took me to see uh, the boss. Uh, Joe Colombo, uh, people who live in New York and my age understand, he was shot and seriously wounded, eventually died from the wounds at a big rally we had at Columbus Circle, uh, I think it was 1971. And the new boss took over, and he, he's passed on now. But I sat with him, and he, he said to me, I have a message from your father. He said, you want to become a member of our life. Is that true? And I said, yes. He said, well, here's the deal. From now on, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you're on call to serve this family, the Colombo family. And uh, we come before anything and everything in your life. And, um, you know, you do whatever you're told to do to prove yourself worthy. And uh, he said, do you accept that? I said, yes, I do. And I was, uh, I was 20 years old, I believe. And uh, for the next 18 months, I was in kind of a, like a, a pledge period where I had to do anything and everything I was told to do to prove myself worthy. And, you know, John, I, I try to say this not to be offensive because it's not easy to say, but, you know, uh, there is a lot of dark side to that life. And, you know, some things I had to do were very menial. There's a lot of discipline in that life, a lot of authority. Uh, you had to do what you were told. There was no questions asked. And, you know, there's a very violent side to that life. And if you're part of that life, you're part of the violence, and there's no escape. And if anybody t says anything different, that they're either not being honest or they weren't a made member of that life. And, you know, I say that so people need to really understand, you know, the extent of, of where I was at one point in my life. And I was just starting out then. Halloween night, 1975, um, I guess in their eyes, I proved myself worthy, and I was called into a room that evening with five other guys, and that night we all took an oath and became sworn made members, that's the term you use, of the Colombo family. And uh, it was a very solemn ceremony. It was, uh, there was a dimly lit room late at night. They wanted you to understand the seriousness of what you were getting involved in. The six of us walked into a room individually, the boss was seated like the head of a horseshoe configuration, the underboss and the conciliary with his left and right, and all the captains. We had about 15 at that point. were alongside of them. And I walked down the aisle, stood in front of the boss. I held out my hand. He took a knife, cut my fingers. Some blood dropped on the floor. This is a blood oath. I cupped my hands. He took a picture of a sink. It was a Catholic altar card. He put it in my hands and lit it a flame. It didn't hurt. It's not a sign of uh, strength. It's, it's just symbolic. It burned quickly. And he said something to me that night that I don't recall ever hearing in my life before. And I grew up as a Catholic. You know, I went to Catholic school from kindergarten right through high school. As a matter of fact, I was an altar boy. But, you know, for me at that point, for some reason, Catholicism was like a subject in school. I didn't, I didn't really get the extent of what Jesus or God meant at that point. I don't know why, and I don't blame Catholics for that. It's just, just how it affected me. And uh, when he said this to me, it was the first time I recall hearing it. He said, tonight, Michael Francis, you are born again. Those are the words he used. Into a new life, into La Cosa Nostra, this thing of ours. Hmm. He said, if you, uh, if you betray this life, if you betray your brothers, then you will die, and you'll burn in hell like this saint is burning in your hands. He said, do you accept? And I said, yes, I do. And that's the oath. The, the other five guys all walked in. They all took the oath. And uh, you come into the life, you come in as a soldier. And I was motivated to do two things at that point. Number one was get my dad out of prison. And, uh, and number two was to make money. And the reason for that, my dad told me in this life, you make money, it uh, translates to power. Not, not unlike the real world. I mean, it's, it's the same on the street in many ways. And uh, I was fortunate. I knew how to use that life to benefit me in business. I had a little bit of a, a head for business that I 
was developing. I, I guess I didn't realize it at the point, but I, when I started to get into it, um, and I, I saw the benefits of that life in a business sense, both legitimately and, and illegitimately. And I went on to make uh, really a, a very significant amount of money. I, uh, I went into the areas that, uh, that they hadn't gone into before, and uh, I developed some new things. And, uh, you know, the result was uh, millions of dollars. I mean, at one point in time, I was bringing in close to $10 million a week. And uh, in 1980, the boss of my family that's now doing life in prison, uh, he made me a, a copper regime, which is a uh, captain, which is a very high-level, high position in that life, and appointed a number of men under me. And from 1980 until about, uh, I would say, 95, when I really considered myself formally removed from that life, I operated in that capacity. And uh, I'll tell you where I was in 1984 when I believed that God started to make a transition in my life. And, you know, you know the, the, the uh, challenge in this is always trying to let people understand the extent of the darkness that I was involved in and how God ultimately had a plan and how he kind of, maybe this is the wrong word, but kind of engineered really from the day I was born until where I am now, what was going to happen and beyond, obviously, in the future. But, um, you know, I was very successful in that life, and I became a major target of law enforcement. They were grooming me to be the boss. That's what my father had in mind for me. The boss also had a son. We came in at the same age, and our fathers were grooming us to take over the family, and that's probably where it would have ended up. But um, I became a major target of law enforcement. I was indicted uh, five times. I went to trial four times um, initially. I actually beat Rudy Giuliani at a big case in 1984. I was the first major uh, mob guy he indicted under the RICO statute. And uh, after a seven-month trial, I was acquitted in that case. Rudy had told me he was going to give me double uh, the sentence of my father if I got convicted. That's the kind of time they would give a mob guys in the 80s. And I was acquitted. A number of my co-defendants got convicted. I got 30 years. And I was a lead defendant. I probably would have gotten at least 50 had I lost that case. I had uh, I'd actually uh, been acquitted or dismissed in four other state cases, so I had a pretty good track record at beating the government. And um, I was bringing in 8 to $10 million a week into my operation. I, I had uh, formulated this huge plan to uh, defraud the government out of tax on every gallon of gasoline. And I was selling a half a billion gallons of gas a month and taking down 20 to 30 cents a gallon. So if you do the math, it was quite a lot of money. I had, you know, two car dealerships. I had a film production company. I owned a couple of restaurants. I was very aggressive on the street. So you're aggressive, but you also had a major target on your back at at, at every moment, didn't you? You know, I did. And, you know, I always say it's a double-edged sword in that life. When you start to become that successful, obviously, you attract the attention of law enforcement. And it was easier for me to attract attention because my father had been a major target. So I was being looked at from day one, really. But then, you know, when I started to get some success and, you know, they start hearing things from my performance and seeing things, uh, you become a major target. And then on the street, Steve or John, it's just really the same thing. You know, I was young, people was a little envy. It's just like the real world. You know, people look at you a little bit differently. So you have a lot of allies, but you also have people that are, you know, not rooting for you. So you, you got to be pretty aware of your surroundings at all times. You gotta, your senses have to be pretty keen. And um, among many things I was doing, I, I had a film production company. I'd gotten into that business, and that's another whole story. But um, out in L.A., 
And uh, I was approached by Smokey Robinson, who I had known for a time. I had met him uh, a while back uh, to do a movie on a, uh, um, was a breakdance movie back in 1984 when breakdancing, uh, you know, was, was pretty hot back then. And, um, so I told him I'd make the movie if we can film it in Florida. I had a house down there and, you know, I, I like the warm weather. So we're filming this in Florida. And, um, I brought cast and crew from LA to work and film and about 50 dancers, professional dancers could dance in the film. And it was, uh, it was here that God started to implement, I believe, a real change in my life because I met a, a young woman. She was 20 years old. She was a dancer in the film, and she happened to be a young Christian. And uh, I think this was the start of, uh, well, I don't think, I know this was the start of God uh, implementing a real change and transformation in my life and my heart. And uh, I don't know if I should keep going if you have any questions at this point because things started to change rapidly for me at that point. Well, yeah, I'd love to talk about how you moved from, you know, this very, you know, this life that you were steeped in, right? It was violent. Anything went. uh, You did whatever it took to, you know, to create profit for the family. Um, You know, everything that you're doing is probably uh, contrary to your beliefs and your values now. And I'd love to hear about that journey and also share, Michael, if I understand it right, you're one of the only high-level mob bosses who's ever successfully been able to move away from that life who wasn't killed or, or put in prison uh, permanently. Well, yeah, you know, in, in that regard, um, I don't know of anybody else that's never been able to publicly walk away from the life, not enter a witness protection program and live to where I am. I don't think anybody has ever done it before, and I certainly don't. You know, I don't take the credit for that because when I finally did walk away, I always say there was no blueprint for walking away from that life the way I did. I wasn't interested in putting people in prison. I didn't want to cooperate with the government to that extent. I tried to make them understand that I was out of the life, but I wouldn't cooperate and put people in prison. And that was really upsetting to them. That's that's what their ultimate goal was with me. But um, I don't know if anybody else has been able to do it, and I attribute that to God's plan in my life. And He's made that crystal clear to me over the past 15 years. And I think, I think to most people that hear my story, that realize that you just don't walk away from that life. And I try to tell them this is a God thing. I mean, there's no other way to explain it. I can't claim the credit. I can't say I had this ultimate plan and that I was going to outsmart everybody. I don't ever sell my former associates short. Um, not at all, and I'm not arrogant about it in any way. I, I just know that, you know, I think God had a different plan for me, and that's that's what's been obvious. But, well, you know, the other thing, too, no, go ahead. I oh, I was going to say, was there a, you know, at, you're kind of at the height of your career, right? Power is growing, stature, uh, you're moving toward the head of the family. So this move to leave the family and accept God into your life was a very significant decision for you was there a point that you know was a catalyst for that to to make this major decision for you well yeah you know and this is this is what i try to get across to people you know god never throws you in the fire and never his plan doesn't sometimes happen in the twinkle of an eye this this preparation for what god has us do and you know things were a couple of things when I made that movie and I met this young girl who's now my wife, it was never on my radar screen to walk away from that life. I was mob guy all the way. 
I was destined to be the boss. I was my father's son. This is who I was, 100%. I mean, there was nothing else on my mind. I didn't think of anything else. Then I meet this young girl, and it's very, very hard to explain because I meet her. I was attracted first by her, her beauty, her physical beauty, and her just knowing her and like her. The fact that she was a Christian, that didn't move me at all. I wouldn't say, well, now I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to accept Christ. As a matter of fact, initially, I didn't want to hear it. I didn't care if she was Muslim, Buddhist, whatever. I was the beautiful woman God put in my eyes. You know, obviously, he used her, you know, to get to me. But my main attraction with her was her, physically and, and, and emotionally. Just, I just liked her a lot and then fell in love with her. But, and I try to make people understand, we never know what God's going to do to get our attention. With me, it happened to be a beautiful woman. You know, with others, it's, it's different things and circumstances in their life. So, but prior to that, even though I never was on my radar screen to walk away, I started to see the, the evil part of that life. I started to realize that there was a lot of treachery. I was called into a room one night where um, I didn't think I was going to walk out. One of the evils of that life, unfortunate things in that life, is you got some trouble, your best friend walks you into a room, you don't walk out again. I had that experience one night where I was walked into a room. I didn't think I was going to walk out again. And, you know, people have asked me, because I've described this quite often, Michael, how did you not cut and run? And I tell them there was nothing heroic about it. It was more robotic than anything else. I just figured, hey, if this is it, this is it. So, you know, I had that experience. At that particular time, there was a, a betrayal in my life. I mean, my father betrayed me, and uh, it hurt a lot. And it just taught me that, you know, if this life can separate father and son, then, you know, this, this is a tough life. But still never had the thought of walking away. I, was just, I just knew it. But now I meet this young girl that God puts in my life, and I start to see a way out through her. I also started to see how destructive the life was to families, my family. You know, not my wife and kids now, praise God, but my own family. My sister dies, you know, 27 years old of a, of a drug overdose. My brother, 25 years a drug addict. My mother, 33 years without a husband because my father did that much time in prison. And ultimately, their relationship became very ugly because she blamed him for all the heartache in our life. And my father, you know, 33 years in prison. And I've seen this happen with every family of every member I knew. So I said, wow, there's a lot of bad things going on here. So this girl comes into my life that God puts there because he ultimately had a plan that he was going to implement through her to me. And all of these things start coming in my head. And I said, wow, this is, this is a chance for me to make a break. So, you know, again, I hope people can see God's engineering in this and how he prepares you for things and not how it just throws you into the fire and says, fine. And I tell people all the time, you know, they say to me, Mike, you could have got killed. Aren't you afraid? And I said, listen, I'm not, a, I don't live in fear. And not because I'm a macho guy. I don't live in fear because I think God prepared me, made me understand that I can face death. He allowed me to have that experience. So even though I'm cautious when I need to be and so on and so forth, I don't live in fear. And that's hard for people understanding. God takes that fear away because he prepared me in a real sense throughout my life for what I was going to have to deal with. Because, listen, contract on my life. You know, I mean, I, I had all the issues that you can imagine having, having walked away. They didn't let me walk away. And I had a lot of issues to deal with and struggles, both in prison and, and when I was on the street early on. 
So, um, but he, he prepared me. And so um, what happens when I fall in love with Camille and I realize I want her in my life, I saw a chance to make an exit. How? They were going to indict me on this whole gasoline case, another big racketeering case. So my plan was this. I would take a plea. I had beat the government so many times. I knew they'd want to get a conviction on me. I figured I would take a plea. I would give them some money. Uh, I'd give up some of my assets. I had a jet plane and a helicopter, and I had houses all over the country, and I had a lot of assets. I would surrender the assets under the RICO statute. Uh, because I was negotiating, I would get them to, uh, to move me to a prison out west. I would marry Camille, move out west. I figured I'd do maybe five years in prison because, you know, I, I really wasn't afraid of prison. I visited my dad most of my life. I knew I'd do some time at some point. When I got out of prison, I knew I'd have parole. And parole, you're not allowed to associate with anybody. It's a violation. I figured I can use that as an excuse not to meet anybody in New York. And maybe after 10 or 12 years, they'd forget about me and, and go on with their lives. That was my plan. And, I, I again, I, I like to make a point. I didn't leave that life for any noble reason. I didn't say, well, I'm marrying this Christian girl, and I'm going to accept Jesus, and I'm going to be a good guy now, and they're all bad guys. I left the life selfishly. I left it because I wanted the girl in my life, and I knew that my life was a direct contradiction to what she believed. And by the way, her mother was a very, very strong woman of faith, the strongest woman of faith I had met to that point. And I knew that my life would never match with them. So selfishly, I chose, I chose the girl. And that's what motivated me to walk away from that life. I didn't realize that this was God's plan being implemented in my life. And what I tell people is, you know, sometimes we walk parallel to God. God always has a design on us. We walk parallel, meaning that I married Camille, but I married her for me. I didn't marry her because she was a Christian. I didn't marry her for God. And I walked away from that life, but I walked away for me. I didn't walk away for God. It was my plan, I thought, at the time. And I, I see myself now as I was walking alongside, and God was up there saying, oh, you married this girl, good Christian girl. I put her in your life. You don't get it, but one day you will. And uh, <laughs> great. Yeah, great. You walked away from that life. I can't do anything with you when you're running around the streets of New York committing crimes. You're walking alongside me, young man. But one day we're going to intersect. and You're going to realize this was my plan, not yours. And boy, that, that's how it played out. Because initially this was all I thought my doing. But the way this has turned out, it's obvious that God had his design on all of this. Because I planned nothing. I planned nothing in this as far as you know, the, the ministry that I have now. But anyway, jumping ahead, I'll go back. I go into prison, and I thought that I married Camille in, in July of 1985. I took the plea and went off to prison in December of 1985. And I always tell people, you know, I don't believe that I'm the real story here. I think my wife is the story. This girl was 21 years old when I married her. She was from Anaheim, California. She knew nothing about the mob or really my lifestyle. She was a young dancer. Um, she had no knowledge of this whatsoever. And she had to live through all of this stuff, five years in prison, death threats on my life, a total uh, uh, surrender of all of our assets, having, you know, we had children, two little babies that we had that, uh, uh, that she had to graze on her own while I was in prison. I mean, it, it was just a mess for her. And she tells you, as much as I love my husband, if God wasn't in the foundation of our marriage, I don't think I would have made it through because she had to deal with so much stuff and so much more than I can go into right now. But 
You know, I love God for that because he's kept women in my life, and I really love them. We're married 29 years now. But, um, so while I'm in prison, it becomes public that I'm walking away. I was put in a position where I had to uh, reject the life, renounce the life, and it became very public. I never realized that it would be it would shoot back to New York like a rocket. Life magazine wrote a story about it, and it, it put a lot of pressure on me. The government came to me while I was in prison. They said, you know, words on the street, we're hearing it from our informants. You're a dead man anyway. Cooperate with us. We'll put you in the witness protection program. Excuse me. And I didn't want to do that. I wasn't interested in hurting anybody. I just wanted out of the life. But they didn't take no for an answer. They gave me a very tough time in prison. They moved me all over the country. They shipped me to different places. And, uh, you know, death threats on my life. They kept me in lockdown. I survived that. I get out after five years, and I'm on parole for 13 months. And John and Steve, I'll tell you, it was the worst 13 months of my life. I mean, I could not get anything going in L.A. I was like a fish out of water. I was starting from scratch. I, um, you know, I had a lot of restrictions on me, and I couldn't put a house in my name, no utilities, because people were after me. We were basically dodging bullets. My wife and I had to move a few times. It was really tough. The government kept the pressure on me. And like a fool, um, I violate my parole, and I go back to prison. And when I was going back, you know, and, and at this point in time, I had accepted Christ. My mother-in-law and my wife encouraged me to accept Christ, and I did. And uh, honestly, you know, I, I can't say that I was, you know, a committed Christian at that point. I was, it still had Catholicism in my head. I accepted Christ almost like a form of confession. Okay, you know, I'll, I'll confess my sins, and I'll, I'll try to live a better life, and maybe everything will be Okay. I certainly didn't read my Bible at that point. I didn't start to develop any real relationship with Jesus. I respected my wife and my mother-in-law because their beliefs were real, and that was impressive to me, but I just couldn't absorb it on my own, I guess. I don't know, even though I thought I was I was doing something right. So um, the night they arrest me, they tell my wife that uh, I would never be a free man again, that they were going to indict me on another major case. They violated my parole. When they took me down to the lockup, they told me the same thing. They were fed up with me. They didn't want me to cooperate anymore. And uh, they said, you'll never get out of prison alive. We're indicting you on another racketeering case. We violated you parole. We took everything you got. They went into my house with a search warrant. They leaned whatever money I had in the bank. They drove away with my car. They took money out of my wife's purse. They totally cleaned her out. She didn't have money to to buy notes for the kids. They told her that uh, under the RICO statute, they could take everything, and they can so they put me in a six-by-eight cell in uh, Metropolitan Detention Center at the federal jail in L.A., and uh, they were going to transport me back to Brooklyn in the morning where my case was in the Eastern District of New York. And when they put me in that cell, it was, without a doubt, the worst night in my life. When I think about it, it's still vivid to me because it was the only night in my life that I ever experienced hopelessness. Mm. I really felt that I was at the end of the road, that there was... I totally lost control. There was nothing I could do to help myself. I was going to lose everything that's dead. I mean, I said, my wife, how's she going to wait for me now? She's got no money. They took everything from her. We have two little babies. Um, she's 27 years old. She waited for me all this time. She went through this whole parole area. I'm going to lose the girl I did all of this for. I said, they can't put me out on the yard. I got death threats all over me. I said, I'm going to spend the rest of my life in a six-by-eight cell. And it was the first time that I just 
felt that I had zero control over my life. I was only 40 years old, so I said, I'm a young guy. I'm going to spend 30, 40 years in this place. And honestly, you know, guys, I was scared. It was, it was a real honest fear of with the condition of my life. And I was angry with God, of course, because I had accepted him. I married a Christian girl, and I thought that I should be treated better than where I was being treated that night. And, you know, I, I always say this. I used to uh, demean people that were suicidal. I, I said that they were weak. They couldn't face up to their troubles. But after that night, I don't do that anymore because I wasn't suicidal, but I sincerely wanted to just close my eyes and not wake up again because for me, it was too painful even to think. I didn't want to think of the future. I, I just, I couldn't deal with it. And I'm laying in that cot, and I was just, I wanted to die. And a prison guard walks by my cell, and he knocked on the door, and he opened the latch, and he said, are you okay? You don't look good. And I chased him away. I said, get away from me. I don't want to see anybody tonight. Leave me alone. And that man came back uh, about a minute later, and he pushes a book through the door. It falls on the floor. I heard this thump, and I was kind of groggy. I looked down, and I saw there was a Bible. And my first response, I was angry. I got mad. I didn't want a Bible. I didn't want to read about God. And uh, I was looking down at the Bible, and, and again, this is so vivid to me. It was like my emotion was just building, looking at that book, really angered. I jumped off of the cot, and I picked up the Bible, and I just slammed it against that cinder block wall as hard as I could. It's like everything came out of me. And, you know, I called myself. It took me maybe a minute, and I said, you know what? I got nothing but enemies. Uh, it's only me and God in this cell. I don't need another enemy, because I believe in God. You know, to me, it makes sense to believe in God, even though I didn't have faith in him. I believed it. And um, I just picked up the book. You know, it was the first time in my life I just looked up at that cement ceiling, and I said, God, if you're really up there, you got to help me. Just give me something to make me feel better, because I'm cracking up in here. I can't deal with this. And, you know, you know, this was, the, uh, this was God's interjection, I would say. It was very strange, because... I was holding the Bible, and, you know, I never really read the Bible. And in Catholic school, to my recollection, we didn't read the Bible. We read the catechism. The Bible was read by the priest, you know, on Sunday in the service, and we'd read the gospel. And so I opened the book, and I opened it up to the book of Proverbs. I'd never read Proverbs before, to my recollection. And I started to read it, and I was so impressed by the brilliance of Solomon. And, you know... The reason I know that that wasn't coincidental is because I'm a, I'm a very analytical guy. You know, when you grow up on the street, I question a lot of things. You know, I tell people, when I'm paying attention, you're not selling me the Brooklyn Bridge. I want to I want to see the evidence. I want to know what's going on. I want to investigate. You don't get things past me because as part of that life, you have to be, you know, your senses have to be pretty acute all the time. So I started to read this, and I'm saying, wow, this guy is brilliant. You know, he's a brilliant guy. And I came to a verse that really, for the first time in my life, just stopped me cold. Something spoke to me. It meant something to me. It was Proverbs 16:7, which says, When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, even his enemies are at peace with him. And I think the even his enemies are at peace with him part got me first because when I, when I read enemies, it immediately clicked in my head. That's all I have is enemies on all sides. Even probably my wife is going to hate me now. I mean, I was... I was an enemy mind at that point in time. And then it just struck me. It was almost as if God was saying, uh, you know, you're laying on that cotton. You're, you're angry with me. You're blaming me for everything. But 
You married this girl, but who'd you marry her for? You left her life, but who'd you do that for? You didn't do it for me. And I don't know why, but that's how I interpreted that verse at that moment. And I came to learn later on, and you, you fellas both know it, you could read a verse 10 times and it can have 10 different meanings to you because I believe God speaks to you through those verses according to your needs at that moment. And then it's almost as if he said, you know, if you do it my way, I can handle your enemies. And, you know, I have a tendency to interpret God in my own kind of language, so I understand him better. But that's how I interpreted that verse that night. It really motivated me to read on. And I came to a verse that's really become the verse of my life. And I encourage people. I think I think our faith all begins here. I think it maybe because of my upbringing, because of my life in the mob, it's, it's all about this. It's Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, which says, Trust in the Lord with, your, with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. And God spoke to me directly through that verse. Now, of course, I didn't realize God was speaking to me, but to me it was just, it really hit my mind. And what happened to me that night, I didn't all of a sudden say, okay, God, I'm with you. What I said to him was this. I challenged him. I said, you know what, God? I trusted and loved my father more than anything in my life. And look where it got me. I said, I took a blood oath to La Cosa Nostra. I surrendered my life. I gave it all up to that life. And look where it got me. I said, I made the wrong decision twice in my life. I can't do it a third time. I said, I know what my wife is telling me. I know what my mother-in-law is telling me. But if I'm going to spend the rest of my life in prison, and then all of eternity after that, I have to be sure of where I'm going and what this is really all about. And I challenged him. I said, you know what? You're going to have to prove this to me this time. I'm not just in that frame of mind where I'm accepting anything that easily. And what happened at that point is the racketeering case that they were going to bring against me fell apart. They never indicted me on it. They did give me four years on a parole violation. And I spent 35 more months and 13 days in prison, 29 months and seven days in that hole, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, just me and God, six by eight cell. And it was during that time where my challenge of God became real. It turned into research, work, study. I must have read my Bible only, only the Lord knows. If you see my prison Bible, there's more of my notes on there. They're very scripture. I don't interpret verses. I mean, I don't recite verses that well because I'm not that smart, but I know my Bible very well. And I continue to read it, obviously. And, and uh, I had my wife send me in probably about 400 books on every faith. I wanted to study every faith at that point in time. And I had a Sony Walkman. I would listen to Pastor Greg Laurie and all of these wonderful pastors and ministry leaders that have a gift of interpreting Scripture. And I tell people all the time, don't only read your Bible. Anything that you can get your hands on that helps you interpret Scripture better, you soak it up. Um, because that's other people have that gift of interpreting Scripture in a way to make us understand it and feel God's love and God's God's strength in our lives. And um, I came out of there believing 100% that, you know, the Bible was truly God's word and that Jesus was my risen Savior. And when I got out of jail, I had zero plan as to what I was going to do. Hey, Michael, and can I ask you I a can... question? Sure. You know, you talked about, you know, way back in the family, being born again into the family, right? And what mm -hmm. that meant at the time. And now you're talking about uh, a different type of being born again into God's family and 
my my thought is, you know, there's so much in your past, right? I hear from so many people just they don't feel worthy of forgiveness. They don't feel worthy of really truly being loved or lovable by God because of things in their past, uh, because of things that they've done. How did you move through that to where you really embrace this relationship with God? Well, I, I had a you know a couple of things. Number one, I realized that. God saved my life in that cell because had I not gone through that and I was on the street, I would never have accepted him. I was too much a product of the street, too much believing I was in control of my life. God didn't cause me to do that, but he used that time. He used the mistakes that I made to really bring me closer to him. And I encourage people to understand that. God doesn't cause the misery in our life, but he'll use it to bring us closer to him. It's unfortunate at times, but if the end result is a closer relationship with God, then we've accomplished something. So what happened was this. Um, I struggled mightily with guilt. Uh, you don't just forget and say, okay, now I'm cleansed. I'm in, I'm in good shape. And I originally, I confessed this to a brother in Christ, somebody that I knew very, very well. And, and um, I told him, I, I remember the conversation. I said, you know, people are coming and asking me to, share my testimony and speak. I said, you know, pastors are talking to me about it. I said, I don't feel comfortable doing that. I said, you know, why is anybody listen to me? You understand the extent of my life? I said, if I was in the audience, I wouldn't listen to me. I don't think I said, it, it doesn't make sense. And he looked at me and I thought he was going to be, you know, uh, comforting. And he said, you know what? Stop being a wimp. Stop talking like a little baby. And I said, Hey, what are you talking about? I said, I'm asking you for comfort. And you talk to me like that. He said, yeah, you're insulting me right now. I said, how am I insulting you? I really don't understand where it was coming from. He said, because my Lord and Savior suffered and died a horrible death, a horrible death for the forgiveness of all sins, all sins. And what you're telling me now is that you're too much of a big shot mob guy that it wasn't good enough to forgive your sins. And when he said it to me like that, it, it kind of made me think. And he said... I want to ask you this. He says, I want you to look in my eyes. I want you to tell me the truth. I said, what? He said, are you really sorry for the sins that you've committed in your life? I said, as much as I can feel sorrow, because he really struck me. I really had to be honest with this guy the way he asked me. I said, I feel that I am. I said, can I measure sorrow? I don't know. But yeah, I want to be forgiven. And yes, I am sorry. And I don't believe I'll ever do those things again. He said, then you are forgiven. You are forgiven. That's the entire message of the Bible. It's the entire message of the cross. And he said to me, Michael, the enemy has two goals in life. He said, one is to separate you from God. And he separates you from God from putting guilt in your mind about your past. He's going to do that throughout your life. He said, you've got to get beyond that. You've got to realize the grace of God was your sins were covered on that cross, if you're sincere. He said, secondly, he said, the enemy's position in life, his second goal, he believed, was to mock God. Now, when he said that to me, it immediately brought me back to the night that I took that oath and said, you know, born again until the close of Nostra. It was almost as if I thought like Satan was looking up at God and saying, ha, I'll show you what born again means. I got one of yours. So the enemy is really at work at our lives to try to separate us from God through the guilt of our sins and the guilt of our past. And if we allow him to do that, well, then we'll never accomplish what God wants us to accomplish in, his life, in our lives. So I was able to get beyond that. 
because I do believe with all my heart that I'm sorry. And what I've done to, to really get beyond that is the closer you get to God, the easier it is uh, to understand that you've been forgiven. Hey, Michael, so what, what, always, what did you do? What Can you think, it sounds like that was a very powerful conversation uh, with this man. Uh, what What allowed you to just pack up that guilt and hand it to God and put it behind you? You know, I think a couple of things. I think uh, I confessed this or I shared this with my wife and my mother-in-law, and they prayed um, that God would give me that peace of mind. They really did. Um, what encouraged me was to see the power of my testimony in other people's lives, and I knew that that was the Holy Spirit working through me. So I said, you know, who am I to interfere with what the Spirit wants to do in my life? And if I allow that guilt to come in, that I'm interfering with God's purpose in my life. It's not me. It's His purpose in our life. And I'm interfering in that. And I don't want to interfere in God's purpose in my life. So I looked at myself as an obstacle for God to do His work. And I said, I can't have that. I said, and I truly started to understand the meaning of God's forgiveness. Of, of what Jesus suffered and died. I really understood that. <clears throat> I said, and in order for us to uh, to allow God to work through our lives, we have to get beyond that. And that was that's what Jesus did in our lives. So, I don't know, I guess it was so important for me to get over that guilt. And I wasn't kidding myself. I wasn't convincing myself. It was just really getting into this relationship with God and, and really trying to make sense of what my purpose was here in life. So as I succeeded, as I got a little better in delivering my testimony, as I saw more people being impacted, I started to realize, you know what, God really did forgive me because he had a different plan for me. And I tell people now, you know, I have drug addicts. I have business guys that come to me and say they've done shady things in the past. I've had people have done some, you know, pretty, pretty dark things. And I told them, listen, yeah, I know you were a drug addict, and I know you did all these things terrible things while you're on drugs, but if you sincerely are uh, sorry for the sins you've committed, you're telling me you are, you don't have to confess to me, but if you're sincere with God, who better than you to minister to drug addicts that are going through these issues now? You've been there, you've done that, you have credibility. God is ready to use you for that purpose, possibly, because mm. you expressed to me this is what you want to do. Business guys, the same thing. People that have done some fairly, you know, for some reason, I don't know why, but people think that they confess things to me it's not always that I, I don't ask them ever to but they feel they can share with me there's the confidence there and i tell them you know who better than you if you've been through something to be able to minister to something somebody that's going through that now you know i always believe that you know credibility is about 90 percent of everything in life and when you're credible people listen and, you know that's why people you know gangbangers listen to me because i tell them listen i left the biggest gang in the world don't tell me you can't walk away there is a way, you know, and, and yeah, and so they pay attention to that because they know I've been there and done that, and, you know, they, they respect the position that I was in at one point in time, and, and people need to understand that God's grace really was for all of us, and it's strictly the enemy trying to interfere and separate us from God. You know, I'm sure you, you fellas, if you have kids, you tell them the same thing. When my kids would grow up, you know, and they would be afraid of the devil, I would tell them, listen, He's not in, this is not Halloween. He doesn't have a, a, a pitchfork, and he doesn't have a horn on his, uh, the end of his tail and horns on his head. He's not lurking in the closet. The only thing the devil can do for you is separate you from God. That's it. 
separated you from God. They're putting doubt in your mind. They're putting guilt in your mind. They're making you believe that you're not good enough to do the work that he wants. And, you know, and, and I made them understand that. And I think it really took hold with them. And I tell people this, you know, if God didn't use sinful people and sinful experiences uh, to fulfill his purposes in his life, who would he have to use? The answer is nobody. Because we've all had a past. We've all committed sin. We've all done something at one point in time. And we have to really believe that, you know, we have a Savior whose, whose grace washed away those sins for us. He took it all on himself. And, and uh, you know, I guess, I guess I just believe in the power of, cro- of the cross because I saw what he was able to do in my life. Um, so Michael, others can see that. Yes. But it seems like, you know, the point you're bringing up, what's, uh, what I'm hearing is, instead of looking at your whole past as this something that kind of piles up into this big steaming pile of guilt, you, you looked at it from a different perspective, right? God is using my past. He's taken everything that's ever happened to me, everything I've ever done, and if I can just get out of the way and not be an obstacle in relationship with him, I can use everything in my past uh, to do incredible things in my future in relationship with him if I look at it the right way. So it's about changing how you're looking at the past versus trying to get over the past. Yeah, and, and when you say changing, how, it, that's correct, because this is, this is how God, I believe, wants you to view your past, because he makes it clear that our sins are forgiven. You know, listen, I spent 20 years on the street every day in violation of both God's laws and the laws of man. There's no other way to cut it. There's no way to sugarcoat it. You're in that life. You're a criminal, and you're living in sin. I did a lot of things that were dark, you know, in in many ways. My lifestyle was not good. And if God was able to turn 20 years of that, you know, into and use it in a ministry, I tell people, what do you have to worry about? I mean, come on. How how much, how further away from God's grace can anybody be? I was a committed sinner. I took a blood oath to uh, to be in sin. I devoted. My <laughs> you were life all in, to... weren't you? I was all in. You know, body, mind, and soul. Well, Michael, and that's it... why you know, you know, could I have engineered this on my own? It was impossible. You know, Michael, as we wrap up here, what uh, you know, somebody's driving their car, they're listening to this, they've they've heard your whole story and what God's doing in your life today. What? What final thoughts would you like to leave with anybody listening today? Well, you know, a, a couple of things. You know, I am so, my focus is, is all on Jesus. And the reason I, that I, I tell people all the time, I came to Christ in a little bit of a different way. I was so attracted to his manhood because I grew up my entire life hearing that I had to be a man's man. I was surrounded by a lifestyle where you had to be a man's man. That's the standard in life I had to live up to. And in studying Jesus' manhood, because I separated his manhood from his deity, because I wanted to see what kind of man he was, I was so impressed by the character, the integrity, the wisdom, the strength, the humility, the love, everything about this man. That's what attracted me to him as a man. And then realizing what he went through. You know, the, the trials that he went through, the, the persecution he went through, all for me. It just humbled me in a way to say, again, you know, who am I to stand in the way? 
if God was able to sacrifice his own son because he had a plan and a purpose in all of our lives, who am I to stand in the way of allowing him to do that because I can't get over this guilt that I have? I said, he took care of that for me. And people really need to understand that. They really need to focus in on Jesus and, and what he went through as a man and, and what the result of that was for all of us, what God's plan was that he implemented through his son for all of us. And, you know, I just encourage people to do that. Focus in on Jesus. Focus in on our Savior. And the closer you get to him and the more you realize that, uh, the easier it will be to deal with your past and your guilt and, 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 and all these things that you harbor when you realize that, that Jesus took it all upon himself for us. Well, I love that perspective, Michael. You know, you've you've taken the historical person that you learned about when you were growing up, and through this you've seen him as a man, as a person that you're in relationship with, a person who will do anything for you, who loves you unconditionally. Um, and I think it's honestly that relationship and getting to that place that you're describing right there uh, is such a place that just brings joy into our lives. And it's a place so many people are seeking to get to. And I can't tell you how much I, I just thank you for sharing your journey and how you got there. Cause I know you've helped me personally, just hearing what you've, what you've, uh, laid out today so well i appreciate that and you know i'm, I'm uh, listen i'm thankful every day for the position that god has put me in and you know I, I want people to understand you know i i have my struggles like everybody else and i sound you know i everything that i've told you comes from my heart and it's in all sincerity but i have my weaknesses also i have my struggles also you know i tell people i, I kind of make a joke out of it you know, I get off the plane in New York, somebody rubs me the wrong way. It's like 20 years of ministry went out of my head and I'm a New York guy again. You know, it just, <laughs> that's how, yeah, it's how easily sometimes we could snap back. Right. And I have found it, I found it so vitally important for me uh, to be in fellowship with men. I, this conversation has helped me immensely because I need this every day. I need to have, a, a you know, five minutes of my Bible every day, 10 minutes, because sometimes that one verse will last you for the day and prepare you for the day. I love to be in fellowship. Uh, it's vitally important because we live in a world where the enemy is always at work. We're always distracted. We have more negative influence at our fingertips today uh, than people had years ago than I ever had really as a kid growing up. I mean, that's, that's the state of the world today. And we have to be, you know, constantly in fellowship. And that's, that's, not, a, that's not a chore. That's a, that's grace. That's just a nice thing to do. That's happiness. It's not a chore. You know, people think that being a Christian is burdensome. I think it's I think it's the be it's the, the best and most significant and easiest thing that's ever happened. I and I look at it that way. People look at me like I'm crazy, but compared to where I was, Christianity is is a blast. I love it. I love being closer to Christ. <laughs> I love that. That is a great way to end the, the note on. And I know that you, you're doing a lot of speaking now. You're out and about. How can people get in touch with you if they, they'd love to come to have you speak at their, their church, their conference, any place that uh, they'd love to uh, hear you just get your message out? Sure. And I, you know, I've been blessed. I mean, I'm normally in a different church or a men's group every weekend. I, I do a lot with the youth. My website, uh, which is the easy way to contact me, is just my phone name, Michael Francis. Dot com, and I'm on Facebook and Twitter and, you know, all over the social media sites. Um, we have a movie coming out uh, around Easter time, which is kind of a documentary feature about my life. Um, very impactful, I believe. We, we opened it up in 20 theaters as a test, 
in October and uh, just so encouraged uh, by the reaction people got. Um, and we'll be opening up wide in Easter and the, uh, the website for that is God the Father. That's the name of the movie, God the Father. It's GodTheFatherMovie.com and you'll see a lot about me there also. But, uh, you know, I'd love to hear from anybody. I, I have a great uh, email ministry, I would say, and, and always in touch with a lot of people. So we, we encourage one another and just trying to, uh, you know, to get through the day with, uh, with the Lord, like I said, makes it a little bit easier. Well, I'll put all that in our show notes, Michael, and I'd love to do a special episode uh, this spring uh, to just help promote the movie. I know that that is going to be very impactful for people, so we'd love to help uh, get the word out in uh, four or five months when when that happens. So thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Steve, any final comments? No, I loved it. I loved it. All right. Thanks, Michael. Michael. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, Have a great holiday, and uh, we'll talk soon. If you'd like more information about Michael's movie, God the Father, where you can find screenings, how you could host a screening, a link to Michael's website, information about Pinnacle Forum, all that and more, just go to eternalleadership.com slash 024. We'll have those links and more in those show notes. Just go to eternalleadership.com slash 024. Or if you're listening on a smartphone, tablet, or computer, just click on that link to go directly to our website, and that link is embedded in this MP3. Special thanks to Justin Jeffrey for his editing and production help on this episode. Next time on Eternal Leadership, president of the Christian Coaches Network, Dr. Michael J. Marks, joins John in the Coaches Corner. Most people go through the day feeling bad about their work. They're not going to say anything to anybody because... Again, they don't really trust that if they say something that's bad about their work, that it will they'll be put down, they'll be squashed, they'll be smacked down for it. That's what has to be avoided, the freedom to express yourself saying, you know, something's not right, I'm not working in my area of strengths, how can I get help? When everybody feels that way, then you've got a self-correcting mechanism. John and Dr. Marks answer a few of your questions next time, so you won't want to miss it. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership. Eternal Leadership.